There's going to be a handful of spaces where we are at today, and I want you to see the high majority of them. So a little bit of heavy lifting for you, but it's going to be worth it, I promise. We're going to start our time in Jonah. And Jonah is two books before Nahum, and we're going to quickly shift to Nahum, but I'll make sure I'll give you time. But I want you to see these verses for yourself. Look at Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and here's the only slide is we have the whole DeVille family back there holding us up tonight, today. So that's, that's good news, man. Isn't that awesome? Hey, man, we're going to be talking about godly foundations for the family and, and for marriages and just people in general, the people around you, and we have that family back there running the slideshow. That's awesome to see. That's encouraging. How does man... How does city, how does country, how does continent, how does world, how does family, how does man go from revival to wrath? Like, how is that even possible? How does that occur? What does the process look like? We're going to see it this morning. I want you to look at Jonah. And remember, if you haven't been here, you've got a short-term memory. Um, what is happening in Jonah, what is happening in Micah, is the same which is happening in Nahum. We're talking about the same climate, the same people intertwined to all three of those books. Now, Jonah says this, chapter 3, the entire chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city. Man, highlight that. The great city. What does that mean to be great? And preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly a great city. Once again, it was exceedingly a great city and three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city and on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we get this imagery of a great city, exceedingly abundant in all that it has. But Jonah comes up to the scene and says, Guess what? In the midst of all of your greatness, you're going to fall, right? Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and it put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them did all of these things. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth himself, and sat in ashes. This is an imagery of repentance. And he caused it to be and proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying this, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. He's basically saying, stop what you're doing. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Listen to verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Are you seeing where Nineveh is at at the end of Jonah? Then God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil ways, and God relented. He relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not 
do it. That is the end of chapter 3, the whole chapter in Jonah. Now, fast forward, how does man go from revival, which they found themselves in, to wrath? Look at Nahum chapter 3, our last chapter of our series in Nahum. So even the leader of Nineveh says, stop what you're doing. If you are a warrior, a farmer, if you are an animal, stop and worship God for not pouring down his wrath. Repent, run after him, love him. Fast forward a hundred years. Fast forward a hundred years. Look at Nahum 3. Woe to the bloody city. Just take a second, get out of the sermon. How does this happen? Like, how do you go from everyone stop? Don't go into work today. Keep the kids from school. Come back from vacation. Honor God. He has shown us mercy. Woe to the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of the whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spears. There is a multitude of slain. A great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over all of the bodies. Because of the multitude of harlots, or some of your Bible says prostitutes of the seductive harlot. The mistress are sorcerers. They sell nations through her harlotries and families through sorceries. Look at verse 5. Behold, I am against you. We go back to Jonah. He says, I relented because I see your works. I see your mind. I see your heart. I'm not going to do this. Five. Behold, I'm against you says the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. Last verse seven. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Guys, grab it, grab it. This great city full of abundance and multitude. It is today's New York City. They will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will beam in her? Where shall I seek comforters for you at this time? How does man go from revival to wrath? Now, we started this book, if you were here a month ago, we started in chapter 1, and, and literally what we see after 100 years of Jonah, we started, and the first words out of Nahum's mouth is what? The burden against Nahum, the burden against Nineveh. So he basically says, hey, listen, your tab has run too much. You owe too much. You haven't paid anything against it. It has to be paid, and this is the same city. This is the same city that we read in Jonah that says, so the people of Nineveh believed in God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. A hundred years. A hundred years, three to four generations. 
I looked and I researched what is a generation and I found that it's literally 30 to 35 years. So I want you to thank you to think to yourself for, for right now, raise your hand if you knew your great grandparent, just one of them, just raise your hand if you knew one. Man, a handful of people, amen. God bless you, right? Raise your hand if you are a great grandparent. That'd be even better. Okay, we got one, okay? I won't make, don't raise it. That one didn't go too high. That one was like this. But I saw you, okay? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the youngest in your family, and I want you to think about the great-grandparent in your family or even grandfather in your family. That is the gap that it took to go from revival to wrath. We see Corn and his great-grandfather, he, he loved the Lord and he loved the church and he sacrificed his life and he followed and he repented. But we see like so many of us, it says, but you... Look at verses 8 through 13. It says, For some of us here, our family members did all of those things, but where Nineveh found itself, it says, You are no better than they, no Amon, that was situated by the river, and that had waters around her, whose rampant was the sea, whose wall was the sea. Ethiopian Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Hang with me. Yet she was carried away and she went into captivity. Her young children were dashes to pieces and her head of every street to cast lots of her honorable men. And great were her men bound in chains. You also will be drunk and you'll be hidden. And this is a poetry type writing. You also seek refuge from her enemy. Now here 12 and 13. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs, and they will be shaken, and they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in the midst are all women, and the gates of your land are wide open for your enemies, and fire shall devour the bars of your gates. How does man go from revival to wrath? Now, Scripture is not clear concerning what happened between great-grandfather and young child, this hundred-year fall. But it's safe to say that at some point, the baton was not passed down to the person who followed in the race, right? Like when I first read Nahum 1 and I was thinking about Jonah, do you remember that first week when I got up here and I was just mind blown about how we're seeing the same story from different vantage points and I read this story and I thought of Jonah and I thought of Micah and I just thought, how is this even possible? Like it's just a hundred something years and honestly, that's probably on the far end. It's technically around 90 years. Like, how did you go from the whole place seeking God, becoming saved, loving the Lord to literally God's wrath being poured on you? How did you get here? But honestly, it's not that confusing. We see it all the time. I want you to think of our country. One nation under what? God. Our country was founded on biblical, godly principles. Like our school system and our government and our family, the constitution of marriage, how to raise children, that was founded on Christ. Now, I'm still glad that I live here. Don't get me wrong, but are we one nation under God? 
Like, can you say it? Like, can you look at our schools and look at our government and look at our families and go, oh yes, our foundation is Christ. Can you see it? How long did that take? It seems like it's been forever, but was it? I want you to think the churches. How many times have you heard this story of like, oh man, like this church when I was little, it was just filled with the Spirit. Oh man, this church was so strong. The youth group was exploding. The the pastor was preaching. We were on mission. and, And like now, how many of you heard that story where a church that used to be strong and filled has fallen? I think about as Ryan read to you, we mentioned the seven churches, and I think about the loveless church in Ephesus, a church that had so many strengths and was doing so many good things, but it says in chapter two, just hear me, God says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love, that you still do good things, you still have a building, you still do things that I told you to do for my name's sake, but I have this against you, you've left while you've come together in the first space. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works that brought you to me, or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove your lampstand from you unless you repent and newsflash. If you don't know how the story ends, it did not happen. And that lampstand was taken. I love this church. Hear me, guys. I love the church, but I love this church. I feel like we have so many phenomenal, God-given, grace-filled strengths. But listen to me, I feel like we could fall quickly. I feel like we are not above that. The enemy has been doing this a lot longer than we've been successful here. All it would take is a few mishandled batons. And we sit here and I read Jonah and I read Micah and I read Nahum and my mind just goes to, well, who dropped them? Like who mishandled the baton? Now I tell you, for most of us, we fail to learn from the past, so we end up what? Repeating it. And part of what we see in God's word, it pulls us to lift us up, to worship the Lord, but also learn from things that have not worked. What do we see in Nineveh and what have we been told where the mind and heart can imagine what occurred in the downfall of these people? We we see a few things. We could see that maybe they lost sight in the midst of abundance. As we just read in Jonah and in Nahum, that this was a great city. I want you to envision Chicago, Detroit, LA, New York City. They lived in abundance. They were the United States. Like they were prospering in so many ways. In Jonah, Jonah actually says that the people of Nineveh felt and believed that it was impossible for them to fall. Now, Scripture tells us that worldly abundance can easily cause hurdles to your faithful race. Did the people of Nineveh, think about your own life, did the people of Nineveh fall and did they drift and regress in the comfort of their materialism? Did that happen? I'm sure it did. 
Was it that ungodly influences and leaders corrupted them? In Nahum 3, I just told you that some of your Bible says prostitutes. What we see in Nineveh, they led their own people and people outside of Nineveh to destruction. And it says that you are a harlot, you are a prostitute. You are luring them in with all of your materialism and abundance just to destroy them. Do we see that the leaders were corrupt and it hurt the people? One thing that I thought about as I read this and I thought about the hundred year grandfather to little child, I think to myself that our children, all of our children, are going to have a day one day that they're going to have to answer for themselves. There will be no excuse about the society and culture that they lived in. So my child won't be a face-to-face with the Lord and go, you don't understand. We had Biden. That's not going to work, right? Listen to me, though. Little Lila, it is not far to understand or imagine how a faulty foundation occurs in 2021. Am I right? Look at the society. Look at the culture. Look what they have around you. Lila is not going to grow old and have conversations about when God was taken out of the school. Do you know why? He was never there. She's not going to have those stories, those moments of, do you remember when? Because she's growing up in a society when it didn't exist in the first space. Was it leaders? Was it strong foundations that drifted that caused the corruption between revival and wrath? Or was it this? Was it a slow drip? Was it a slow drip? Was it that one generation just cracked the door while the next generation flung it open and then the next generation failed to realize that there was a door there in the first space. Let me ask you a question, if you're a note taker. Right now in your life, as a man, as a parent, as a child, whoever you are, grandparent, are you creating, continuing, or ending foundations in your life. We are all part of the process, every single one of us. Are you creating a new foundation that you come from brokenness and lostness and you are creating something phenomenally godly and strong for your family for the future? Are you doing that? Or was that poured into you? And you're continuing it faithful. You got the baton and you are already running, right? You were running full stride because you got that baton. You're doing it. Your father poured into you. Why? Because his grandfather poured into him. And you were running just as fast. Are you doing that? Are you jogging? Or are you ending foundations? Was your grandmother strong and your mother was strong, but you seem to have dropped the baton when handed to you? Are you creating new continuing already our ending foundations, chains. From a great-grandfather to a young boy, what we see in Nineveh, the foundation was changed. And this is what I wonder. I wonder if the grandfather who cracked the door, he didn't fling it open, he didn't kick it open, he just cracked it and let the enemy come in. He just cracked that door to disciplines and worshiping other gods and all of those things. I wonder if the grandfather who cracked the door realized that wrath was coming for his great-grandchild. 
Do you think he realized it? You see, the way we live our lives, guys, I want you to see it, greatly influences the lives that will follow us. You hear me? How we live our lives, the decisions that we make, how we live Monday to Sunday, what we place first, our views on the church, how we treat our spouse, what we pour into our children, greatly influences generations. I want you to see these verses, not just hear them. Look at Deuteronomy 11. Look at Deuteronomy 11. We'll take a second. I want you to see them. They're great verses. Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. How does man go from revival to wrath? Are we creating new, continuing already our crushing foundations? God's word says this. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine. You shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them in a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the front lids between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now listen to this that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. I thought about my own life as, as I was reading these verses and foundations and whatnot, and um, I don't know your story, but my story, there was no mention or to my understanding or knowledge of my great-grandfather loving, following, or professing Christ. I read all about him. I saw the obituary. I talked to family. Jesus was not really a part of that man's life, and I never met him. My grandfather, my, my father's father, who ended up taking his life at a young age, also no mention of loving the Lord or professing Christ or, or serving the church, also did not meet him. Then my father, who I knew very well, um, loved me, but his views and theology was very, very distorted. His love for the Lord was not known to anyone, to my knowledge. I believe he died not as a non-Christian, as a lost man, a non-believer, which crushes me. So my life, Hunter Jones, I'm creating a new foundation. I am creating a new love for the church, a dependence on the word, how to raise a family. What London and Liam as my boys will, incur, will encounter will be very different than what I encountered or my father encountered, right? So I am creating something new, but I'm also continuing in something that was poured into me indirectly, my wife's grandmother, very different circumstance and very different story 93 years old, 93 years old, still living by herself, doing well. She is one of the most faithful, God-loving women that I've ever met. You walk into her house and like everything's across, even the magnets on the refrigerator, everything's a framed verse. She has a whole bookshelf and like every one of them's a Bible, right? Just a faithful, faithful woman. And when she got married, she married a faithful man and they had four children, one of them being Mr. Terry Bradshaw, 
my father-in-law, Wendy's father, who came to speak to us men about how to raise daughters, right? So Terry and Brenda, my in-laws, have two children, one of them being Wendy. Wendy's a faithful woman, loves the Lord, grown up to love the church and God, and then I meet her. And now listen, maybe I was naive and clueless, or maybe I was a heathen, I don't know. But I didn't meet anybody like Wendy until Wendy. And that's not really lifting my, my wife up. I really think that's really just showing how dark I was. So when I met Wendy and I was like, oh, you don't just go to church because like a crazy, phenomenal Christian were just people who went to church. I never, listen to me, I don't know if I ever growing up really talked to anybody about faith in Jesus and scripture ever. So I meet Wendy and she talks about her love for the Lord and serving the church and she's quoting scripture and all of these things. This is what a relationship would look like. It was so foreign to me. My wife had a gigantic impact on me. I come to be saved. I come to love the church, start serving in youth ministry, surrender to preach. And this morning I am pouring into every single one of you, which is directly impacted by Wendy's grandmother in which you will never meet. We have a gigantic influence and impact for generations. All of those things that I just told you about Wendy's grandmother all the way to her, to me, to you, that took 92 years, about the same time it took for Nineveh to fall. We love talking about our children and how we will pour into our kids. And guys, guess what? That is obvious. That is surface level though. You will not just simply pour in to the ones you tuck in. Your walk with Christ will directly impact generations of kids with your last name that you might not ever meet. Your marriage and your family and your views on the Lord will impact great-grandchildren that you might not ever tuck in, good or bad. It will have a great influence. I want you to see these verses. Go to Romans 5. Go to Romans 5. I want you to see these three verses here concerning the, the negative, which quickly flows into the good news of the gospel that we'll read at the end. I want you to see it. It's Romans 5, verses 12, talking about how Sin and even the, the blessings, but also it, it's an inheritance. It flows into the people around us. And this is not just a parenting sermon. This is about marriage. This is about friendships. This is about the church. This is about our country. This is about every relationship that we might have. Look at Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Look at 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, but who is a type of him who was to come. Hear me, church, if you have heard nothing else. Your walk with Jesus 
will be inherited by your loved ones in future generations. Good or bad, it will rain down upon them. What you place first in your life, what you idolize, what you worship, what you love most, you will leave in a will to your blood. And as I said, little Lila will have to answer for herself. That is not saying that my life determines her or gives her excuse or gives her assurance. That's not what I'm saying, but it will influence. Amen? I will leave that to her. My children will get older and they will know what meant most to Hunter Jones. My kids will know what I thought of the church. I've told you guys this, and this is just wise, sound advice. When you are talking to your spouse, when you are talking to your kids, when you are talking to family and friends, speak only good of God's church. I'm not saying praise me or David or your team. I'm not saying that. I am just trying to say when you are in front of your kids, don't ever bring weight upon the church. You know why? Because what I've seen so many times is when the parent vocalizes, I don't want to be there. I don't want to go. That man is boring. I hate that music. Why are they doing this? Guess who mimics that? The little ones that you tuck in. And you have lied to yourself if you don't think your kids look at you and go, hey, bro, it's Sunday. Why are we at home? Like they might not have wanted to get dressed and they might enjoy still being in their PJs or somewhere else on Sunday. But you have distorted reality if you don't think they realize. My kids will know that daddy loved his church Did he love his people? How did my father view the hurting? How did he follow his commands? How did he speak to my mom? Your dependence on the Lord, your love of the word, all of these things, your walk with Christ will rain down in generations. How does man go from revival to wrath? And the answer is, Quickly and easily. Quickly and easily. Have you cracked the door? Listen to me. Because I'm sure the great grandfather who just cracked it, he said, hey, listen, the enemy can't get in the crack. It's just Sunday. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to speak Jesus. I don't want to serve. I don't want to pour. I'm just cracking it. But man, when that child saw the crack, when he got older, he flung it open and their child doesn't even realize that a door existed. That is how Nineveh fell. It was a slow drip. They went from the leader going, oh man, stop what you're doing. Praise God to the burden upon this bloody city. Are you creating new, continuing strong are breaking foundations. If you came to my mother's funeral, um, I want I thank you, and, and I was very blessed about um, how many people loved on my family. Um, this church was so good to me. I was in a bad space and very tired and weary, and this church did a phenomenal job of loving your pastor well. I'm indebted to this place. 
But if you came to my mother's funeral, you heard me preach out of Ecclesiastes and King Solomon near the end of his life. And for me individually, I love, I am obsessed with this book. I could read it daily, every morning and every night. I just love it. It's the meaning of life and it is so heavy and powerful. It's like literally the type of scripture where I am on the edge of my seat concerning what is the meaning of all of this. And if you were at the funeral, I spoke about how there is nothing to celebrate if my mother who had passed away was not a believer in Jesus. Like if she was lost, this is depressing and dark and weary. We are celebrating him, not her. You heard me say this. So we get in the car and I'm tired and worn out. My wife is talking to me after I get home and she goes, Hunter, there was three people behind me. She said, I didn't know who they were, I do. And she said, Hunter, there's these three men, these young men who literally, as you spoke and you poured your heart out about Scripture and God and how funerals are meant to to represent the imagery of our need of a Savior. And if you are not saved, you're not ready for this moment. As I poured this into the crowd, she said, there was three people behind me that just mocked you made fun of the things that you were saying. Like, Hunter, you'd say something very boldly and I would hear one turn to the other and debate you on whatever it is that you said with just foolishness opinion, right? And I want you to understand this. It is safe to say, I say it every week, it is safe to say that somebody in even a room like this is probably lost. However, on a Sunday, most of you that come in here are at least intrigued. Like somebody, maybe, somebody in this room most likely doesn't just hate God and think that this is foolishness, but a funeral is very different. In a funeral, you're getting people from every walk of life and they might not have any desire for God, but they still came to the church out of respect for the woman, right? And I looked in that room and it was so funny, right where Corin sits, there was this guy who came in, he had a novel, and I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Like, as I was praying, this cat was just like laid back, and he was like flipping the pages so I could see him, right? And then my wife tells me, these people were mocking you and making fun of the, the scriptures, and listen to me, that did not anger me in the least bit. It saddened me. Did not anger me. It saddened me, but did not surprise me. Because I know these men's father. And I knew of their grandfather. And I heard of their great-grandfather. And as I said, that is not an excuse, a rationalization, or should give assurance to who they are in life. But it does not surprise me of what they said and what my wife heard. Are you creating a new chain to be poured into your family so they will pour into them? Are you creating new disciplines? Are you creating a new image of what it means to love the Lord and the church and your family? Are you continuing that? For some of you in this room, my story's not yours, man. You had good parents and you had a phenomenal pastor and you had a good cousin who loved you well and you had those families, man, and they sprinted and they gave you the baton. Now run, Run! Do not be the one who cracks the door. And if your door was cracked, slam it closed. 
And for some of us, man, we've been handed batons and we're walking with them. You've been poured great, strong disciplines and faith and love, and you are not sprinting, you are not jogging, you are walking with it in the wrong direction. And for those who live this way, as we close Nahum, I want you to see the the last few verses of God's promise for broken foundations. Look at 14 through 19. As we said, we have Jonah and we have Micah and we have Nahum and the story ends, guys. I know we've been amazed with how everything's connected, man. This doesn't continue. This is the last movie that's made. And it says in 14, draw your water for the siege, fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar, make strong the brick kindling. There will be fire that will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locust. Make your multitude, your merchants, that your stars of heaven, the locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals are like grasshoppers which camp in the hedges of a cold day. Then the sun rises and they flee away and the place where they are is not known. Hang on every word of 18 and 19 as we close God's promise to what's going to happen for broken foundations. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Israel. So he says, the people who look after you, the people who are strong, the people who seem confident, the ones who have prostituted you away, your shepherd, O king of Israel, they slumber in front of me. Your nobles, they rest in dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Man, isn't that strong? Highlight that. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hears the news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your witness passed continually? As we end, God promises after he has relented when he sees their faith and repentance, he promises them now in Nahum wrath, which his decision will not be changed. For those who have been poured into, or maybe not, but have chosen a life of wickedness and evil and have not repented of their sins and they felt like they were okay because we were in the midst of abundance and that was all that I was given, Hunter, is this wicked society. So I became like them. I walked instead of ran. He said, I will pour wrath into your life. Now, as we end, I want you to see this. Last time I have you flip and we're praying, I want you to go to the good news of the gospel in this message back to Romans 5. I want you to see it and then we're going to pray, okay? If you are somebody this morning, Romans 5, it's the last thing I have on my sheet here, so finish strong. If you are somebody here who goes, Hunter, man, my great-grandfather didn't pour into my grandfather, nor my father, nor me, and I'm sitting here, and my door's wide open, and I am beat down by this message, there is good news. If you've been poured in the gospel, but you've cracked the door, and you have realized that, and God has caused you to repent, there is good news. 
If you are the one who have poured in wickedness into the foundation for your family, but you see your error and you desire Christ, there is good news. Or if you need to be encouraged as you race and you sprint past the person or with the person that has run before you, there is good news. Look at 15. This is talking about, nevertheless, death has reigned from Adam to, to Moses, and that is how life works concerning our walk and our influence. And I want you to see the good news of Christ and our promise. But the free gift is not like the offense. Highlight that. If you've cracked the door, slung it open, or you fail to realize that it exists, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, but much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Do you see this? For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Talking about Adam to all the way to you and I. We talk about my wife's grandmother being poured into me all the way to you. But this is the flip side of this. It's for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation for all people. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Keep going with me. Therefore, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even though one man's righteousness act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Stop what you're doing. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinner. Adam poured all of that in us. But here's the good news. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. How we close. Moreover, the law entered that offense might be abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin resigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow our heads. God, I thank you for today. Lord, as we examine our lives and we examine our race and we examine our walk, Lord, I pray that you bring encouragement, conviction, opportunity, and guidance to all of us. Every single one, even if, if you are lost or you are saved, you are a part of the chain. You are a great-grandparent or a son or a grandparent or a father or a future generation example. You are all a part of this. You are pouring into someone without your last name. You are pouring into people who have your last name. Lord, I pray that everyone here sees the heavy importance of their life their walk, their race, their good fight, that this is not just about them, that this is not just about their family. This is about generations that they might not ever even know that's literally spurred on by their walk. This is about your church 
This is about this town. This is about this country. This is about this world. How you have commanded and commissioned us to live. Lord, I pray that you pour the importance on all of us today that it would be influential to all the people who come after us and who have come before us. God, I thank you for your son, the grace that has reigned upon us to even give us an opportunity. That, Lord, we know that even with strong desires to live faithfully, it's impossible to do so. That your Holy Spirit that fills the body of believers are the only thing that gives us the opportunity and knowledge to even understand Scripture, to love the church, to repent for our sins. Lord, I pray that you forgive and you save the lost here today. If someone does not know you, Lord, help them put the first brick of their foundation for their kids and their wives and their children's children down the road of salvation. Save the lost. Reveal yourself. In your precious and holy name, the church says in harmony, amen.